Well, a little bit, little bit different uh, as we begin tonight. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it, uh, and I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke and the 10th chapter. Now, granted, this is not a familiar Christmas passage, but I want you just to bear with me for a few minutes. The Gospel of Luke and the 10th chapter, it's a familiar story, just not one that we normally talk about at Christmas. One of the undeniable signs that is beginning to look a lot like Christmas is the heightened busyness that always accompanies the month of December. And it doesn't matter if you're someone who is super organized or if you're someone who just likes to kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Christmas always seems to bring different levels of stress into our lives. Excuse me. Different levels of stress into our lives because we're overworked and we're overscheduled and we're overwhelmed. I was thinking this past week about what Christmas was like when I was just a boy and how different that was to what I experienced at Christmas as an adult. When I was young, you know, the days leading up to Christmas could pretty much be described with words like anticipation and excitement and expectation. But when I was young, when I was a child, uh, I didn't have to do anything to prepare for Christmas. I didn't have to go to work every day to pay for Christmas. I didn't have to plan Christmas. I didn't have to shop. I didn't have to do anything but show up. Well, fast forward to today, and Christmas is completely different for me as an adult. I'm sure you'd say the same thing because I stay really busy in my life from the beginning of December all the way up until I go home after the last Christmas service, or Christmas Eve service, rather, which is at 11 o'clock each uh, December the 24th. And there have been many times throughout my years of ministry when I've had my Christmas interrupted even on Christmas Day by visits to the hospital or bereavement visits because somebody tragically passed away and on and on and on. I'm sure you've got your own stories of the busyness that can accompany Christmas every year. Well, the sad reality of that for all of us is that we can sometimes allow our lives to get so busy in the month of December and during the Christmas season that we get caught up in a variety of things that cause us to miss Jesus that keep us from drawing near to Jesus and being close to Jesus, who is the message of Christmas. And that brings us to Luke chapter 10. So if you've got your Bibles open there and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. We've got a brief passage of Scripture. It's right at the very end of Luke chapter 10. Uh, it's the familiar story of Martha and Mary, and it's Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Follow along as I read. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. All right, there it is. You can be seated. As always, we ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. The first thing I want you to understand about this story is that this is the only place it's found in the Gospels. It's not recorded anywhere other than the Gospel of Luke. There are no parallel passages in the other Gospels. And I'm glad because it's a great story and because it's a story that really doesn't require any explanation. But having said that, if there was one word that I would use to describe this story, the story of Martha and Mary, it would be the word priority. 
I know that's a common word in our culture that I'm sure everyone understands, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, let's just create our own working definition. Nothing dramatic or new, but let's just create our own definition as we study this together. If you want to find out the true meaning of the word priority, then you need to begin by understanding that it is a simple word, or, or simply, rather, simply a form of a word, and that word is prior. And the word prior means before, ahead of, or preceding. And so based on that, based on that reality, here's the definition that we're going to use for priority as we study this passage of Scripture together this weekend. I'm going to put it up on the screen so we can all read it together. I want to hear your voices. Read this with me. A priority is something that comes before everything else. Pretty simple, right? Let's read it again. A priority is something that comes before everything else. But let me ask you a question based on that definition. Is it really possible to reduce your life to one thing that comes before everything else? Whether you're talking about in the Christmas season or any time of year, is it really possible for people like you and me, busy people like you and me, to reduce our lives to one single thing that becomes, that, excuse me, that comes rather before everything else? Does anyone really live that way today? I mean, in a day and age where there's so much happening all the time and we don't want to miss out on anything, we don't want our children to miss out on anything, is it possible to reduce your life to one thing that comes before everything else? How do you think David, King David of the Old Testament would answer that question? Well, look at these words on the screen from Psalm 27 and verse 4. I think this is how he would answer it. He would say one thing. Everyone say one thing. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I think that's how David would answer that question. How about the apostle Paul in the New Testament? How would he answer that question? Well, let's look at these words from Paul in Philippians chapter three. This is verses 13 and 14. He'd say, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing, everyone say one thing, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Here's the ultimate test. How do you think Jesus would answer that question? Remember, the question is, is it possible, is it really possible to reduce your life to just one thing that comes before everything else? Well, if I look back in my Bible at our text, the text we just read a moment ago, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 41, this is what happens. After Martha, who was, remember, distracted by all the preparations that had to be made in hosting Jesus, after she said to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing, everyone say one thing, one thing is needed. Is it possible? Do you think that'd be the expectation of God for all of us as believers? To reduce our lives to one thing that comes first before everything else. You know, I love as much as possible, I love to keep things simple in my life because I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a simple person. I really am. 
We just finished a message series called A Generous Life because every November we set aside some time to talk really openly and honestly and unapologetically about money. And we do, really, we talk about two things every year in November. We first talk about how to handle money in a way that honors God. And then second, we talk about the responsibility of every believer to be generous. And both of those things, handling money and generosity, both of those things are very simple to me because I approach them in a simple way with a simple plan. When it comes to handling money in a way that honors God, I follow, and this won't surprise you, I follow those four pillars of financial management that are in the book of Proverbs that I have shared with you over and over and over again for the past 20 years. In the book of Proverbs, we learn this about money. You need to keep track. That's number one. In other words, you need to manage whatever amount of money you have from God with, with, you know, with knowledge, understanding Everything about it, how much is coming in, how much is going out, where it's going, and on and on and on. So number one, keep track. Number two, plan ahead. The Bible celebrates the wisdom of planning, and that certainly applies to managing money. Number three, save consistently. You've got to be prepared for the future. The Bible celebrates that. And then number four, give habitually. And you know what? That works. That simple plan works. I like simple because simple works. When it comes to generosity, I have a very simple plan with regard to that. And my simple plan is I give back the first part of everything God gives to me. The first part goes back to God. And it works. I like simple because simple works. And that's what we see here in this familiar story of these two sisters, Martha and Mary. You remember they had a brother. His name was Lazarus. Our lives as believers work in that they honor God and they keep us right where God wants us to be when we embrace the simple priority of making Jesus our first priority and we put him first before everything else, no exceptions. That's the fundamental message in this story that we just read. In fact, here's a real simple, I love the word simple, here's a real simple way to look at it. Our everyday lives can be reduced to choices, the choices we make. And in our story, Mary chose the right thing, which was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha chose the wrong thing, which was being distracted by all the preparations had to, that had to be made. And the priority of every believer is to choose Jesus and put him first before everything else. Now, honestly, when it comes to this story, we could stop right there. But I know that we have a lot of really great Bible students in this church. So let's take this a little bit further, maybe a little bit deeper, by looking at the story of Martha and Mary in the overall context of the Gospel of Luke. You know, there are four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of those Gospels are very similar. That'd be uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, and the Gospel of John is very different. Those first three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, and then the Gospel of John kind of stands alone with a, a, really, a really identifying theme. But if we were to talk about this story in the overall context of the Gospel of Luke, then this is what we would see. When we get to the story of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10, what we see is the beginning of the last six months of Jesus' life. You might want to write that down. It literally starts with his visit to the home of Martha and Mary in a village called Bethany. 
Now, we don't know that they lived in the village of Bethany based on what we read in Luke's gospel. We know that they lived in the village of Bethany based on what is recorded in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. Our story doesn't mention that. Luke 10, 38 simply says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village. That's it, a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. That's all we're told. Now, there's a reason for that, as strange as that might sound. There's a reason why Luke, when he wrote the gospel that has his name, did not identify this village being, or this, this home rather, being in the village of Bethany. And the reason is, in Luke's gospel, as I just said, the last six months of Jesus' life begin here, and the last six months of Jesus' life, literally from Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, all the way to Luke chapter 19, focuses on Jesus' teaching ministry, his teaching ministry. Everything else that Jesus does in his life, everything else that we're familiar with Jesus doing in his life, takes a back seat in Luke's gospel during the last six months of Jesus' life to the importance of his teaching. You can read about some miracles that Jesus performed during those six months, but not nearly as regularly as you might read about miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospel of Matthew, for example. And the reason why, and the, and the recipients, the main recipients of Jesus' teaching were the apostles and his disciples. And so, in other words, the reason, the reason why Jesus spent, according to Luke's gospel, the last six months of his life with an emphasis on teaching is because he knew that this was going to be basically the final semester of all of his followers to study with him in, prep, in preparation for their coming responsibility, ultimately to take what we call the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And the gospel, of course is the good news that Jesus came to the world to offer all men everywhere a new and a better life. One day, Jesus is going to be gone. And when he's gone, they were going to have this responsibility. And so Jesus needed to teach them. And the emphasis on Jesus' teaching is during the last six months of his life is so strong that as Luke writes this part of the gospel, this is really interesting. He's not even interested in identifying the places that Jesus goes because it doesn't matter. All he cares about is focusing on the things that Jesus taught. We just saw that in Luke 10, 38, where we read, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, on their way where? On their way to Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that in a minute. He came to a village. What village? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is he came to a village where he went into the home of two sisters, Martha and Mary, and he taught. Now, we don't know what he taught specifically. It's not told us in the in the text, but he went to a village to the home of two sisters where he taught, and we know he taught because Mary was sitting at his feet listening to everything that he says, but we're not told where it is. If you still got your Bible open to Luke chapter 10, just look down. That, our story is the very last part of Luke chapter 10. Look at the very first verse of Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 verse 1 says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. What place? Look at me, everyone. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters as you read Luke chapter 11, verse 1 and the following verses is that one day Jesus began to pray and his praying led to his teaching about prayer. And that's the way the last part of Luke's gospel unfolds, listen to me, from the beginning of Luke chapter 10 and verse 38 
all the way to Luke chapter 18 and verse 35. Because a specific town or place is not mentioned again until you get to Luke chapter 18 and verse 35. Here's what that verse says. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho. Now, if you go to Luke chapter 18 and verse 35, you see that we're at the very end of chapter 18. And as Jesus approached Jericho, you know what he did? He healed a blind man. Okay? So there is some healing. There, is, there are some supernatural acts that Jesus involved himself in in the last six months of his life, according to Luke's r- record of his life. But it's not the emphasis. His teaching is the emphasis. And so Luke chapter 18 begins with him healing a blind man on his way to Jericho. And then when you get into Luke chapter 19, the first 10 verses tell us the story of Jesus and a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. And then after Jesus' story with a man named Zacchaeus, there's more teaching because Jesus shares what's called the parable of the ten minas. And after Jesus shared the parable of the ten minas, you know what he did? He went to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly life. In fact, Luke chapter 19 ends with the story of the triumphal entry. He went to Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel... The focus on the last part of Jesus' life that begins with this story of Jesus in the home of Martha and Mary, the focus of Luke's gospel on the last part of Jesus' life is his teaching, the content of his teaching, not where he's doing the teaching or any other thing, just his teaching. I told you a few minutes ago that uh, the home of Martha and Mary was located in a village called Bethany. That's identified for us in John's gospel. Do you know that Bethany is a village that's a little less than two miles from the eastern wall of Jerusalem. A little less than two miles. An easy walk for Jesus. Less than two miles. Some of you have been to the Holy Land with me, and you have stood right here looking at this very picture. This is the eastern wall of Jerusalem. What what an incredible, unforgettable moment it is to stand And look at the city of Jerusalem. Jesus in Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. But he doesn't get there for six more months. And you know what he does? For six months, friends, he crisscrosses. I just picked that up and then I just knocked it over. He crisscrosses back and forth this part of the Holy Land because he's taking advantage of every opportunity he has to do one thing and one thing only and that's to teach. He's going to make it to Jerusalem. This is a part of God's plan. We know that. He's going to end up in Jerusalem. He's going to die on a cross. He's going to be buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he's going to raise from the dead. Luke 9 and verse 51, which is just before, uh, not long before the passage that we talked about, that we're talking about uh, in uh, our study this weekend. Luke 9, 51 says that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He was going to go to Jerusalem one final time, but not right away because he needed to spend some time teaching. And so that's what he did for six months, friends. Six months he spent some time teaching, all the way from our text, all the way down through chapter 19. And you know what Jesus teaches about? Let me just give you a summary. During that period of time, he teaches about prayer. He teaches about Satan and demons. He teaches about divine judgment, about hypocrisy and persecution, about suffering. 
about the Holy Spirit, about greed and contentment, about the use of money and what it looks like to be a good steward, about unity and righteousness and holiness and humility and pride. He's going to teach about how heaven rejoices every time a lost sinner is saved. He's going to do that in Luke 15. He's going to teach about divorce. He's going to teach about hell and repentance, about forgiveness. And listen, friends, he's going to teach a whole lot about faith. And here's why I mention that. Because we need to be reminded of how important it is for us to know the truth of God's word if we're ever going to live the lives God has called us to live and share the message that God has called us to share. And that takes us back to Luke chapter 10 and this story of Martha and Mary. One of the most significant reasons this story, this seemingly innocuous story right here in Luke's gospel is so important is because what we read in verse 38 and verse 39 of chapter 10 is this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, on their way where? We know now, don't we? Jerusalem. He came to a village. What village? It doesn't matter. Where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, she had a sister called Mary, and this is what Mary did, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. What was Mary doing? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach so that she could live no more and learn more and understand more about living the life that he called her to live and sharing the message that he called her to share. And I'm not exaggerating or overemphasizing how important this was. Martha and Mary were both believers. That can be clearly discerned by what's written about them in the Gospels. But when Jesus was in their home, it was Mary who made the right choice by not allowing anything to distract her from the priority of Jesus and getting as close to him as she possibly could. And it's so interesting to me, friends, that she's described in our story as sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to what he said. The word used in the original language to describe the reality that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet is a word I'm not even going to try to pronounce. I think we're going to put it on the screen so you can see how long it is. A multi-syllable Greek word that comes basically, its foundation is basically in this small Greek word, para, which means alongside. means alongside. And so, as I studied this verse and I studied this word to try to understand what this looked like for Mary to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, this is what I read. She was as close as she could get to Jesus. Wherever he was in their home teaching, wherever he was standing or sitting probably, she came alongside of him as close, as physically close as she could possibly get, and she hung on every word that he had to say. And you know what? What Mary did, technically, was something that was forbidden by rabbis in ancient days. Not that someone would get that close to Jesus, but that a woman would get that close to Jesus. When it came to teaching, in ancient days, a woman had two options when it came to learning. She could learn in the back, or she could learn in what was called the woman's section of wherever the teaching was happening. But when Jesus was in Mary's home, she took full advantage of his presence 
by not being distracted by anything else that was happening around her. She was so focused on learning from him that her heart's desire was to get as close to him as physically possible so she could soak up every word that he had to share. Now, in contrast to that, we saw this in the story. Her sister Martha was distracted by all the preparations. That word distracted in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word parispata. And it literally means cumbered. We get the English word encumbered from that Greek word. And the literal definition is all tied up in or all tied up with other things. And that was Martha. While Mary sat as close as she physically could get to Jesus at his feet, listening to him teach, Martha was all tied up in and with other things. What do you think it was? For Martha, it was probably, probably preparing food, making sure the house was as clean as it could be, deciding where Jesus and those who were traveling with him were going to sleep, and on and on and on. But the bottom line is the busyness of the moment caused her to miss the opportunity of the moment. The busyness of the moment for her caused her to miss the opportunity of the moment. And as I said earlier in the message, what we see is nothing less than this. Mary chose the right thing when it came to Jesus. Martha chose the wrong thing. So let me just ask you a really direct question. What choice are you going to make about Jesus in this Christmas season? Are you going to stay as close to him as you possibly can? I mean, literally, to the best of your ability... Are you going to stay as close to him as you possibly can so that you can hear from him and you can learn from him to better live the life that he's called you to live and better share the message that he's called you to share? Or are you going to be distracted by all the preparations of the Christmas season? Which is it going to be? I want to help you make the right choice. And so I've got three encouragements that I want to give you this weekend. And I want to really, really, really urge you to follow through on these three things. And I'm going to urge you to write them down, even if you're not somebody who takes notes and you haven't written a single thing down that I've said, which has been so good, by the way. <laughs> it's good for me. I want you to write these three things down. Here's the first one. In this Christmas season, I'm going to encourage you to, to decide for yourself what sitting at the feet of Jesus looks like. Decide what sitting at the feet of Jesus looks like for you in this Christmas season. Now, for Mary, when Jesus was in her home in Bethany, what it looked like for her was coming alongside him physically and getting to him as close as she could possibly be. But what does it look like for you? What, what is it literally? I mean, you don't have the, the, the advantage that Mary had. We don't have that advantage. Jesus is not going to physically manifest his presence in our homes in this Christmas season. So what does it look like for you? Do you need to find solitude in this Christmas season where you can literally have nothing else going on except fixing your thoughts on Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, 
the things that he shared, the challenges that he gave. Maybe, it, maybe if you just open up your Bible and, and reading it or studying it for the month of December, maybe like you've never done before, maybe reading the Gospels, Maybe for you, it would be opening up your Bible and deciding that every day from, from now until the end of December, and really, I think if we do this from now to the end of December, we are probably going to do it for the rest of our lives. But maybe it's opening up your Bible every day now between now and the end of December and going right to this text, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38, and reading all the way through Luke chapter 19, those six months of Jesus' life where his only only goal, his only plan, his only mission was to teach and prepare for what was coming next for his followers. Maybe that's what it looks like for you. Maybe it's to pause or to, or to step away from some things that are going on in your life so that you can have some free time for prayer and meditation. But the first encouragement I'm going to give you is this. You need to decide what sitting at the feet of Jesus looks like for you. Get this picture in your mind of Mary alongside Jesus, sitting at his feet where Jesus doesn't even have room to cross his toes. She's that close. What is that going to look like for you? Here's the second encouragement. Once you decide what that looks like for you, make sitting at the feet of Jesus your first priority every day in December. From now to the end of December, and I'll say it again, I think that if we were to do that, Honestly, we were to honestly do that with sincere hearts every day for the rest of the month, we'd probably end up doing it every day for the rest of our lives. It'd be that meaningful. I read a story one time about Charles Schwab, not the investment banker, but an older Charles Schwab who was the steel tycoon of the 19th century. A story about him and a business consultant named Ivy Lee. Schwab contracted Lee to give him advice on how to improve his productivity and profitability. And after a little bit of time of visiting and kind of observing what was going on in Charles Schwab's life, then the advice that Lee gave him was very simple. He said, each day, write down the five most important tasks you need to do that day, and then do each task one by one, but don't start task two until you complete task one, and so on, and so on, and so on. And when he was finished, Lee told Schwab, I'm not going to bill you for this consultation. Instead, I want you to agree to try my advice completely for a certain period of time. And when that time period is up, you pay me what you think it's worth. And six weeks later, Charles Schwab sent Ivy Lee a check for $25,000. Now, remember, this was $25,000 in 19th century money. How much do you think that'd be today? So much more. But isn't, isn't the advice pertinent to what we're talking about? If you were to create a to-do list for every day in December, every day of Christmas, and at the very top of the list, you put your priority of sitting at the feet of Jesus, whatever that ends up looking like for you, and you didn't do another thing until you accomplished that, what do you think Christmas would be like for you this year? I think it would be significant for all of us. And here's the third thing. Focus on the reward that comes from sitting at the feet of Jesus. Focus on the reward that comes with sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
You know, I really believe, friends, as we, we come to the end of the message here, the team will get ready to come and close our service. I really believe that some of the greatest rewards that we can experience as believers come from doing simple things, doing the simple things that make our spiritual lives special. I, I found this story recently, and I want to close with it. I think it captures what I'm trying to communicate. It's a story about one man sharing an experience that he had in his home with a friend. And he said, I came home from work yesterday, and I saw the most amazing thing. What did you see, the friend asked. He said, well, I pulled into the garage and came to the house through the laundry room, and the first thing I saw was a huge pile of laundry on the floor. I stepped over the pile of laundry and walked into the kitchen, and the next thing I saw was a huge stack of dishes in the sink. And then I went into the living room, and I found my wife sitting on the floor wearing sweatpants and my Green Bay Packers jersey with couch pillows for shoulder pads and black stripes under her eyes. And my four-year-old son was sitting on her lap wearing his sweatpants and his Green Bay Packers jersey with fake shoulder pads and eye black under his eyes, and the two of them were reading a book. And my wife looked up at me and said, sorry about the mess. We just had a football game, and now we're reading a story. And the man continued as he talked to his friend. He said, I'm not used to this. Growing up in our house, or excuse me, growing up, our house was spotless, but if I ever wanted my parents' attention, my dad was always busy in the garage, and my mom was always busy in the kitchen, and it was up to me to entertain myself. And then he said, thank God I married someone who can embrace the importance of each moment regardless of what might be happening around her. Let me tell you, friends, it's just this simple. We embrace the importance of each moment when we live lives where we choose Jesus first before everything else. Somebody say amen to that. Before everything else. And life is always going to be filled with distractions. Christmas would always be filled with busyness and hurried people and rush and deadlines and activities and responsibilities and on and on and on. But it's possible to reduce your life to one thing that comes before everything else. That's what Mary did, and she made the right choice. Martha didn't do that. She made the wrong choice. And Mary experienced the fullness of Jesus in that moment while Martha missed it. We don't want to miss the fullness of Jesus, God in human flesh, coming into the world for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to do just what we saw, go to Jerusalem where he would die for your sin and mine. We don't want to miss the significance of Jesus for anything. I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you so much for time to open up the Bible. A little bit different message this weekend, a little bit different approach, but I pray that the Holy Spirit really impacts our hearts with this truth about Mar Martha and Mary and Jesus and the responsibility and the privilege to sit at his feet, to get as close to him as possible, to learn, to listen, 
to soak him up, to be obedient, to live the life, be equipped to live the life he's called us to live and share the message he's called us to share. Thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand together and sing.